welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. I'm going to try something new today, you guys, and I'm going to try to remember to do it in every episode. Uh, before introducing the guest and or co-host, as it may be, and topic, I'm going to read a uh, five-star review from <laughs> a person who calls himself Zacharoni. I do not know Mr. Zacharoni. I can only guess that the person is named Zach. He says, uh, I fall on the progressive side of this debate. But it's got to be a debate. And this podcast is an excellent experiment in civil conversation and the discussion of ideas over political tribes and party loyalty. Listen, share, let's move forward together to fix what's broken while maintaining what's working in our democracy. That's beautifully said. Thank you, Zach. And I just want to let everybody else out there know that if you do a five star review of us on Apple Podcasts, I'll read you next. All right. So uh, today we're talking again to Alex Cheney who is the host of the Yang Daily Podcast. Say hi, Alex. Hello. Riffing on the review, asking if that might be Big Coat Guy. Be who? Big Coat Guy, you know. Uh, Andrew Yang's campaign. Zach. Oh, maybe. It could, it, could be, it could be that, Zach. Who knows? <laughs> All, right, All right. But today we're talking about the Trump insurgency. And where the first time I heard that phrase, I think it was Reed Galen, who's a member of the... Uh, Lincoln Project used it. So, you know, he's a never Trump conservative, a Republican, but not a Trump, not a Trumper. Um, and he used it to refer to what he saw as the inevitable um, slew of domestic terrorism that we're definitely going to be seeing in this country as an inevitable consequence of the fact that Donald Trump has decided to make himself the leader of a stochastic, stochastic terrorism network. Um, I know that sounds a little bit hyperbolic, but keep in mind, he predicted this before the attack on the Capitol and Trump isn't even out of office yet. And the Trump insurgency has already committed a, arguably the, the largest act of domestic terrorism in this country's history. I mean, keep in mind, even though only five people died, how much worse it could have been if they had succeeded at killing Mike Pence um, and Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi or holding Congress hostage and forcing them to uh, overturn the will of the voters. That was their goal. Um, now, of course, not all of the protesters were aware that there were terrorists in their midst, um, but it was clearly very organized. They, they, people came wearing shirts outlining exactly what they intended to do saying revolution and civil war. Um, and they, they came wearing like full paramilitary gear. There are people running up the steps in trained formation. They brought ladders and explosives and guns and knives and baseball bats and all kinds of uh, things there. So the, we're talking about a significant number of people, certainly hundreds, if not more, um, who, you know, dozens of whom have already been arrested for this act of terrorism. Um, so I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Reed Galen was 100% right, that Trump really is the head of a stochastic terrorist network. Um, Alex, do you want to say something about that term stochastic terrorism, just so people understand what we mean by that? Oh, shit, dude, this sounds very heavy. Like, did something happen since I was last on the podcast? <laughs> uh, apparently, Alex has been living under a rock, guys. I'm, I'm caught up. Uh, so, yeah, stochastic terrorism seems to be the uh, new buzz term that everybody's learning and stumbling over. Uh, but I mean, it basically just means 
a sort of terrorism that's incited, that's unorganized, and it's just you know you're you're trying to incite violence and and chaos and that sort of thing. So it's not like an organized conspiracy. At least that's my understanding. Yeah, no, I mean that's right. I, so the, to keep in to be clear, um, there was an organized element of it, like I said, but the organization. Trump's relationship to the organization is where the stochastic part comes in. So stochastic terror is when somebody with a microphone, um, for example, the bully pulpit of the presidency of the United States, which is arguably the biggest microphone in the world. um, When somebody with a microphone like that says things that predictably are going to result in terrorist activity, even though he's not explicitly calling for terrorist activity, Um, We call that stochastic. It's stochastic in the sense that um, the person inciting it isn't committing literal legal collusion um, or conspiracy to um, to commit terrorism. But they are nevertheless knowingly saying things that are certain to incite terrorism and saying them to the right people at the right time um, in order to, to signal that. And what the FBI is finding is that uh, you know these organized networks of want of, of terrorists um, uh, who want to overthrow the U.S. government um, are meeting online? They were meeting in places like Parlay, and now they've been pushed to darker corners of the web. Um, but basically, the FBI is seeing that they saw Trump's statements as a a signal about what to do and where to do it. Oh, okay, this is what he wants us to do. He wants us to stop. Congress from certifying the results, which is sedition. One of the definitions of sedition is to try to uh, hinder or delay the uh, enforcement of a, of a U.S. law. In this case, the, the Constitution's call for Congress to certify the results. Another definition of sedition is to capture by force um, a U.S. Uh, part of the, the U.S. government's property, in this case, the Capitol. So yeah, this was sedition. It was terrorism. Um, and uh, Donald Trump incited it, period. But what, like, Reed's point was that he wasn't just predicting that this would happen one time. He was saying we are in for years, years and years of organized terrorism um, where the leader is inciting it through through a stochastic terrorist rhetorical style in order to limit his own legal liability. But he was nevertheless clearly the leader of that movement. And again, the FBI sees that these people themselves consider Trump their leader and, and his statements as calls to arms. Yeah. uh, A lot of people have the overly optimistic view that, you know, we get Trump out of office and then this all just kind of goes away and it goes back to how it was before. And that's obviously not going to happen. Uh, About a third of the country has been radicalized at this point. Um, And what we saw at the, at the Capitol was a lot of people are pushing the idea that like, you know, either this was just completely spontaneous uh, or it was a massive, like the whole thing was an organized conspiracy. And the truth is as usual, somewhere in between, there was like a bunch of small groups who were actually planning for something like this and came there with paramilitary gear. And like, they were ready to capture or kill Congress people. And they'd, They'd had like blueprints of the building and everything. The vast majority of the people were just, you know, Trump supporters and that showed up to the rally and then they kind of followed along to the Capitol and, 
you know, were milling about the building and whatever. So there were a whole bunch of different groups who had different levels of um, involvement or intent for sedition uh, that were involved in this. And it was just a chaotic mess as a whole. Um, what Trump's role was in it was obviously, I mean, he started the whole thing with the voter fraud lies. And then he gave, uh, he had the rally, which was called the Save America March, which is very suggestive. And then he gave this speech. And I'll just point out like quickly a few, a few things that he said in this speech um, that are noteworthy. So he said, our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that is what this march is all about. So there he's saying that this is the culmination. It ends today. He also said many times we can't give up, we can't concede, so backing down is not an option. He said, I really want to see what you'll do, which is basically prove how far you're willing to go for me and for the country. And he called on military and law enforcement to join in the march, which is terrifying if this was a coup attempt. The first chant from the crowd that he allowed to propagate was fight for Trump. And he said, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. So to summarize, he convinced these people that Democrats were stealing the election. He told them that this was their last chance to stop it. He told them, he told them to show their strength and do whatever it takes. He targeted them on his political enemies, and he sent them there. I mean, it doesn't get any more clear short of him commanding them to do exactly what they did. And people who are arguing that, you know, he did nothing wrong because he didn't specifically call for violence would, in my opinion, apparently think that Satan is a great guy because that's literally the role that Trump played here. He was the manipulator, providing motive, justification, target, and encouragement for people to do bad things. It's like if you convinced your friend that the neighbor they hate is maliciously poisoning him and his family and then urged him to do something about it until he goes over there and tries to kill the guy. Like, that's essentially what what role Trump was playing here. Yeah, and of course, his surrogate and personal lawyer until he was fired after this happened, Rudy Giuliani, called for trial by violence, explicitly. And a lot of other Trump supporters um, in Trump's name have been calling for explicit violence and civil war and and, and even terrorism. Um, and Trump hasn't denounced those people, right? Um, yeah. So yes, I I, it, I think it's fair to say stochastic terrorism is how it applies to Trump. In the case of some individuals who collaborated online with thousands of other people to commit an organized act of terrorism, um, that was just plain organized domestic terrorism, and it was a conspiracy on their part. But Trump's role in it, we have to call it stochastic, and there is no real legal recourse to it right now. Um, which is something that I think we need to address because, to be clear, the somebody who is in a position like the president or, or frankly, even a member of the Senate or the House or any um, position of, of political power um, to spread conspiracy theories that are demonstrably false, that the election was rigged, to undermine faith in the democratic process, um, to deny the authority of judges at the um, local, uh, state, and federal level, including judges Trump appointed himself, including Supreme Court justice, justices Trump appointed himself, um, to say that all of those courts are illegitimate and their rulings are illegitimate, um, 
that the election results certified by the states, including Republican-controlled states, are illegitimate, and that the vice president um, needs to work with Congress to overthrow a free and fair election. Those things, uh, those are all acts of sedition, if not terrorism. Um, and but but Trump didn't. The one thing Trump himself, we don't have any evidence of, is he didn't explicitly. He didn't go as far as Rudy Rudy Giuliani and explicitly say we need violence. Um, and so I think we do need to be clear that he is covering his own ass. But also he knows, like when you tell millions of people that they're that you know that that the the election was a fraud and that they need to save america and save democracy by any means necessary including things that are illegal like overthrowing via violence or any other way um an act of sedition um i think it's fair to say that he is intentionally inciting terrorism and i think the fbi is right to look at it that way and they are yeah it is important to uh as you say keep in mind that this speech was just one piece in a much larger perspective. I mean, like uh, when we left off episode 141, which I won't go over again, like everything that we laid out there about uh, what he's done so far that matches up with dictators of the past. Um, but what we left off with was we were looking forward to the election and we had uh, produced all these warnings about things that might happen if he was going to attempt a coup. And the only thing that surprised me about what happened at the Capitol really was that something like that hadn't happened already because we were expecting that to happen on like election day for there to be voter suppression efforts, uh, you know, militias coming out to try and prevent, pre prevent people from voting or intimidate them away from it. And we didn't see that on election day. And that was a pleasant surprise. But literally everything else that we warned about came true. He claimed early victory. He treated the mail-in ballot count as a fraud. He called for stopping the ballot counts. He refused to concede the election. He attempted to stall the count and overturn the results in court. He attempted to get state legislators to bypass the vote and win for him through Congress. Like literally everything that we were worried about in a coup attempt happened. And then on top of that, he did this, inciting the attack on the Capitol, which has resulted in now we have 20,000 troops in D.C., many of whom are quartered in the Capitol, sleeping on the floor of the Capitol building to protect the U.S. Congress from the United States president and his mob. Like this is this is third world banana republic stuff right here. And it, it's 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 entirely surreal. Like that photo. Uh, I mean, I was just in shock. We were all in shock watching it as it unfolded. And that photo of uh, the bare-chested guy, the shaman, in uh, in the Senate, at the podium, uh, just taking selfies, or not selfies, but, you know, posing for photos, like, that is how the rest of the world sees America right now, is that it is under mob rule, and they are not far removed from the truth. Yeah, and Mike Pence um, had to put out a, a statement saying that he would not invoke uh, the 25th Amendment but that he was, well, mainly because I think he, he basically was signaling that it wasn't possible. I mean, keep in mind that, you know, half the cabinet appointed by Trump has to back it and Trump fires every single person who isn't loyal to him. So right. that makes it very difficult. Um, 
But yeah, I think my, you know, Mike Pence said, I'm not going to do the 25th Amendment. What I am doing is I am using my remaining days as vice president to signal to our allies and to our enemies, to the rest of the world, that the United States does have a functional government um, and that this transition of this peaceful transition of power will happen. Right. Um, and Trump is an obstacle to that. You know, like one way of looking at it is to say he could have prevented this act of terrorism if he had just not continued to spread the lie, the seditious conspiracy that the election is a fraud. I mean, this is this is something that China and Russia um, and North Korea, this is the sort of propaganda that they try to spread in order to undermine faith in the United States um, and to incite violence within our borders. And Trump is doing it for them. Yep. That's pretty much the state of it. And uh, this is this would kind of fall into what is referred to as the big lie which is something that always happens with authoritarians and dictators. Um, basically, like the bigger the lie you tell, uh, ironically, the easier it is for people to believe because they just wouldn't, ex they just don't think that like someone would tell a lie that far removed from reality unless, you know, it must be true because nobody would tell a lie that big. And so that's, that's something that about human nature that uh, authoritarians always lean on is they just make the biggest lies possible and incredulity works in their favor. And that yeah, happened uh, uh, not just with the voter fraud lie, but also with lies about COVID. You know, he's lied about pretty much everything and they just keep getting bigger. Yeah, I think that's right, Alex. Although I'm going to come in here with a, a little, uh, how do I put this? I, th I think that obviously there are certain individuals who truly believe it. And I think those people are clinically insane because you would have to be um, in order to believe this contrary to all evidence, again, including all of the courts, including people appointed by Trump and Republican heads of state, et cetera, all saying this isn't real. Right. Um, and, you know, it is being the lie is being repeated by certain members of Congress. But those people are not judges. They are not lawyers who are who can be censured for lying in court. They can lie in Congress, right? Trump can lie in the White House. Um, I think that the the number of people who really believe this lie of Trump's is pretty small. Um, I think that the vast majority of people who say they believe it say they believe it for two reasons. One, to signal allegiance to Donald Trump. And two, because it's a way of justifying the fact that they have given up on democracy. It's a way of justifying the fact that they want to overturn the will of the people. Um, you know, I, I was listening to a, a, a podcast on uh, David Duke with my wife the last couple of days. Um, Alex, I'm assuming you knew who that is. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, this guy was elected to the Senate. Um, he was an open, outspoken member of the KKK. Um, uh, he was a proud Nazi. There were publicly verifiable photos of him wearing the swastika. Um, he, he said he celebrated Hitler's birthday. And this guy was elected to the Senate with 60% of the white vote in his home state. Okay. The, what's important to point that out is it was actually, um, he managed to get a higher turnout than the polls showed, just like Donald Trump on a national level. He got a higher turnout than the polls showed. And the reason for that is because there are these people who 
regular traditional polls don't pick up. Why? Because pollsters don't call them because they're not, quote, reliable voters. They're not likely voters, right? These are people who don't normally vote, but they, they will turn out reliably if the person running is a racist. That's just the truth. I'm not saying it's all about race, but, you know, like if you if you are a white supremacist, um, if you're a person who thinks, but you know you're not supposed to say out loud that black people shouldn't be allowed to vote, right, and that the votes of black people are illegitimate, then, you know, a more socially acceptable way for you to do that is to repeat this lie that you know deep down is a lie, which is that this was an illegitimate election, because what you really mean by that is, well, if you only count the votes of white people, Trump won. So, no, I do not buy this idea that they don't believe it. Or I'm sorry, that they do believe it. I think they know that technically it's not true, but they think that spiritually and emotionally it's true. And and so this is, um, you know, if you talk to radicals online, including far left radicals like communists and anarchists and people like that, if you talk to radicals online one on one, they will say things like, um, well, we have to be careful about how we talk to normies. Right. Normies being people who might be sympathetic to some aspects of their cause, but who are not on board with overthrowing the government or terrorism or whatever hardcore methods they're planning on using. Right. And so the way you talk to normies is you signal with ways that make them more comfortable. So you you don't say we want to overturn democracy. You say you say that as authoritarians um, historically have always done, you, you claim that democracy is already a fraud, and then you use that to justify seizing power. And that's what they're doing. So, I I'm, yeah, I just I think that there are a handful of people who should be in straitjackets and padded cells who are actually crazy enough to believe that. I think the vast majority of them are just saying it to signal allegiance to Trump and as a, quote, socially acceptable way of attacking the democratic process and the rights of, of minorities to vote. Well, it's an interesting conversation um, because I think it's it's kind of a, a weird distinction. Um, it, it reminds me of when you were talking about uh, how delusion, uh, medically speaking, they have to make, make like an exception in the definition for religion. Um, and so you have to think about like how much of the world population is religious despite the fact that religion is an irrational belief. And I'm, I apologize if that's offending anybody, but I mean, that's kind of just the fact. Like, it, it, it's based on faith, not empirical evidence, right? So um, it's very clear that there's a, there's a strong driving force in uh, humanity to believe in things that are not rational or, or that there isn't evidence for. So I don't think it's really that much of a stretch to believe that this much of the American population is willing to go along with uh, and truly believe like these voter fraud lies, um, considering that we've already proven in so many other ways that we're willing to do that. Yeah, um, no, exactly. And, and it's not a coincidence. It's a lot of the same people who believe that, you know, the world is fewer than 10,000 years old, not just the world, but the universe, right. um, that evolution didn't really happen, etc. Right. Um, these are people for whom their worldview is not based on facts and logic. It is based on faith is one way of putting it. But it's not even based on the most like uh, sophisticated forms of metaphysical arguments that, you know, um, smart theologians have made over the years. Right. I, I don't find those persuasive either, personally, but they at least are something that an, an intelligent person can 
kind of wrap their mind around this. These people are operating on the, the lowest level of intelligence that the human being is uh, (laughs) capable of sinking to, as far as I can tell, which is basically just they, their epistemology is a straight line from what they wish were true to what they think is true. It's that simple. And, and I don't think that these are not, these are not intellectuals. These are not people who are used to dealing with ideas in a nuanced manner. For these people, it is as simple as this is my conception of America. My conception of democracy is that only people like me should be allowed to vote and people like me should always get our way. Um, And if my side loses, I'm just going to say it was stolen. And by the way, I think it's important to point out, Alex, uh, and off air, Alex told me like it's a shame that we come off as sounding partisan, uh, but this is what happens when people um, stay committed to being nonpartisan and one of the parties nevertheless <laughs> becomes a terrorist insurrectionist organization. Right. I mean, they have some of the evidence for that being, again, right, that there was a recent poll that showed that uh, 47% of registered Republicans support the attack on the Capitol. They think it was yeah. justified. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, and, like. And, I never uh, wanted sorry, to be Alex, like, let me get this out before I okay. forget. Go and ahead. so, you know, in the spirit of being nonpartisan, something else, you know, if you're if you're a person who paid any attention to the Democratic primary the last couple of times, um, hardcore supporters of Bernie Sanders were spreading similar conspiracies around the Internet about how the primary was rigged against their guy. Right. All movements are susceptible to that kind of thinking. But the difference is Donald Trump is amplifying it and ratcheting it up and giving it the credibility of the presidency. It's as if Bernie Sanders himself were going around saying, the election was rigged against me, the Democratic primary was rigged against me, the Democrats are all corrupt, um, You know, we need to do something to save democracy. I mean, if he was doing that, then we would be seeing stochastic Bernie Sanders terrorism right now. And, and, and it should be obvious to everybody that we would be. Because there is a certain, you know, minority of people in every movement who already spread those lies anyway, and having the person at the top of it repeat them can only make it worse. Obviously, that's like common sense, right? And there's no doubt that a lot of Bernie's followers are, you know, saying that that's what they want. I mean, they want to, you know, bring out the guillotines and burn it down. And they would be overjoyed for Bernie to join them in that rhetoric, but he has not. So I never wanted to be railing against the GOP. Like I got into this, I got into politics with uh, Yang and UBI. Um, I never intended for like my podcast to be talking about Trump all the time. I wanted to avoid that, in fact. Um, And in fact, I've actually become more conservative since I found Yang and UBI. I see the value now in like smart deregulation, um, such as not making doctors recertify in every state or not like getting rid of protections on clean air and clean water. Um, I see the problems with bureaucracy, government control, market perversions, like the bad incentives and restrictions of conditional welfare and the harms of minimum wage. I see the value of free markets, decentralized management of the economy. I see America, in fact, as a country of free markets, a free market for business, a free market for religion, and a free market for policy. And I have more respect for the Constitution, the wisdom and character of our founders for setting all that in motion. I owe a lot to Yang and UBI for opening my eyes to the fact that it is possible to make the best elements of all political ideologies and make policy from that, as opposed to 
what the parties seem to do, which is take the worst aspects and make a policy platform from that. Um, UBI is the best example. It eliminates poverty and bureaucracy. It creates a real free market for labor and eliminates the need for market distortions like minimum wage, both of which combine to create a real free market for business and pricing and innovation. It improves quality of life and societal health while also paying for itself through economic growth and cost savings. So it's the best of all worlds. That's the sort of policy we want. Um, so I've always wanted my podcast to be inclusive of all sides of the political spectrum, pushing for good ideas, not for parties. I hate that the GOP has become so radical and so opposed, as you said, to those classical conservative values that I have to be on the side of the Democratic Party because the GOP have just become a party of authoritarian death cultists. I, yeah, I mean, apart apart from the very um, noble people who are willing at great political cost themselves right. to stand yes. up for the right thing like Mitt Romney. Yeah. And uh, so we have seen, like, as you say, some of the legislators and leading figures of the GOP now backing away from Trump. Uh, some of them have for the entire time, very few like Mitt Romney. Um, but 10 just voted to impeach him in the House. Um but then there are also those like Lindsey Graham, who said he was done with Trump after the insurrection and then got accosted in an airport by Trump supporters, calling him a traitor and uh, threatening him. And he reversed course immediately. Um, right. and, and I think it's important to point out the irony of that. These people are backing terrorism, right? OK, 47 percent of registered Republicans. That's uh, however you look at it. Millions of people right now. Of course, it's important to keep in mind only about 30 percent of Americans are registered Republicans. Right. So less than half of that. So you're looking at about 13 percent of the of the voting population, right, or eligible to vote population. Still, that's millions of people. And when you have millions of people who are proudly telling pollsters that they support a terrorist movement immediately in the aftermath of an act of terrorism done by that movement. That is a real problem. And it, it takes it to the point where our, our long running joke calling Trumpkins, you know, the American Taliban mm -hmm. or Al Qaeda, who he was endorsed by <laughs> um, and the KKK and David Duke, by the way. But yeah, no, I mean, um, that isn't even a joke anymore. We literally are dealing with the equivalent of Al Qaeda in the United States, and half of it, and half of half of one of our major parties, is in that terrorist movement. Now, if it were Democrats doing that, we would also be calling that out. And if you guys go back and listen to episodes, if you haven't heard them already, where I was talking about um, the riots that happened under BLM, I spoke about that in equally harsh language. Um, but and technically, but what those could also be called worse, What happened here is worse than that. But I did. But I. But I called it out at that, that at that time. I said they should all be round up and arrested and had the have the book thrown at them. Right. I mean, all these people making excuses for their for their terrorism and their criminality by pointing to other criminals. I mean, I, that's absurd, right? Like the fact that other people commit crimes doesn't mean it's okay to commit crimes yourself. Jesus Christ, what is wrong with people? Yeah, I mean, I found. Uh... I found the animus for the for the riots that happened during the BLM protests to be a lot more uh, relatable because uh, those seem to be you know people at least some of them some of them were opportunists opportunists obviously but some of uh, the driving force there was like against police brutality systemic oppression that sort of thing whereas right now it's against democracy like they're literally rebelling because the election did not go their way and they want to overturn that result. 
So uh, yeah, in both cases, you could even, you know, like uh, when people were taking over police precincts, you could call that insurrection as well. No, it um, is. And, and it is sedition as well. And they should be charged with it. And actually, I think that the similarity runs deeper than that. Because now, I mean, I think it's important to say terrorism is terrorism and criminality is criminality no matter what your cause is. Right. Now, even if it was a completely justified moral cause, it would still be wrong to use those methods to get your way. Period. Right. Period. End of story. Doesn't matter what it's about. OK, period. Um, but. In the case of of uh, the most the most radical BLM protesters, um, which probably are also the ones who are willing to to commit sedition and um, and crimes on its behalf, um, you know, many of them are calling for anarchy. Many of them are types of anarchists, um, and so I think that the the parallel in terms of sedition runs deep. But now, once again, in order for this to be comparable totally comparable, Joe Biden would have to be stirring them on and encouraging the violence. Right. Um, but that's not what he did. And Toward his I understand that in the case of both Trump and Biden, you can find statements where they where they uh, condemn the violence itself, right? right? But again, the difference is Joe Biden isn't spreading a conspiracy theory about democracy being a fraud. Right. And and calling for himself a form of sedition, which is to overthrow a, a democratic election. Right. So the difference is Trump is inciting stochastic terrorism intentionally and is committing sedition himself intentionally. That's yeah, the, difference. the BLM stuff was about and, and an also actual... BLM didn't attack the Capitol. I mean, the entire line of succession was in that building. Yeah. If you were going to try to attempt a coup as the president, taking out the VP and the Speaker of the House is the way to do it. Yep. And he I mean, this is Banana Republic too. stuff. And in Banana Republics, it's also goofy and silly and, and, and dumb and pathetic. And the, the overlap between the more competent seditionists and the more incompetent seditionists is almost funny, right? Um, but yeah, that's what happens in tin pot shithole countries thing. The world is their Their country is run by crackpot loony bin morons like Donald Trump, who is deeply unqualified. He's I, I honestly don't think he's ever read a book cover to cover in his entire life. Um, he had, he had to threaten lawsuits in order to keep his grades out of the public record. But you know, this is all part of the appeal for Donald Trump. Or for Donald Trump supporters, because they are fed up with um, having fancy pants elites who went to fancy schools and who make lots of money like Mitt Romney, um, you know, advocating real right wing policies because real right wing policies are not helping these Trump voters. They don't want a free market. They want socialism for white people. That's what they want. And democracy, but only for white people. That's what they want. I, I, at this point, I am fed up with pulling my punches. I'm just going to tell it like it is. Fuck those assholes. <laughs> and to be fair, I mean, uh, you know, the GOP has traditionally been pushing, like, as I said, they kind of take the worst position on what should be a good position, which is like pro-free market. That's great. But, uh, you know, when you ask them about poverty or whatever, they're like, uh, well, that's... It, that's not a problem. That's just part of the part of the package. And it's like, no, 
you need to find stuff like UBI where you can actually have the free market and eliminate poverty. Like that's the sort of policy that would be pulling these people in instead of driving them to uh, radicalization, in my opinion. Yeah, no, um, I understand that. And, and you know, something you said, Alex, actually jumped out at me and um, really rang true. You said that you've become more conservative lately. I have, too. And and seeing the way that Donald Trump's movement has betrayed conservatism um, has infuriated me and has actually made me more conservative myself. I always consider myself center right. Um, I've always been effectively a swing voter. Um because I think it's important to reward both parties for moving in the direction you want it to go. I think when the Democratic Party took on the third way after the fall of the Soviet Union and um, you know basically kicked all of the radical lefties out of their party, that was a good thing that I welcomed and was happy to reward. Um, and I think it's time for the Republican Party to clean, clean house and kick out all these radical so-called alt-right people. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If it was really right wing, it wouldn't need to put the word alternative in front of it. I'd like to kick, then to kick those people out, too. But, you know, like I've always been right wing economically um, in the sense that I believe in low taxes and deregulation and free markets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there is no real far right movement in the United States with any credibility. And there hasn't been in a very long time because we are a mixed economy. We are a social democracy. We do have you know, public schools, and we do have welfare programs and social security and all kinds of things. And if you look at Trump voters, they are not right wing people like myself. They tend to be people who say things like, get your government hands off by Medicare, right? These are people who like social security. They just only want it for white people. <laughs> you really do see it in the way they talk. It's almost as if they like they, they, it's not even that coded because it seems to be basically the implication is if they weren't giving welfare to black people, then they could get more welfare for themselves. You know, the real Americans. Um, now, keep in mind, I'm not saying that all um, Trump voters fall in that category, but most of them are working class. Most of them um, support policies like Social Security. Most of them send their kids to public schools. Many of them are on welfare. And actually, the, the red states in the middle of the country actually take more in federal benefits than they contribute in federal taxes because they, they're, they're actually very poor states that would be in much worse shape if they weren't being supported by the wealthier states on the coasts. Yep. Um, you know, like a, a Donald Trump's base is a working class labor movement. And they might not be as far left as Bernie Sanders. And they might think they're against socialism, but they certainly like center left social democratic policy as long as it only goes to people like them and not the bad Americans or the fake Americans. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we would you and I and many others would like to see the GOP reform themselves into uh, a party of classical conservative values and uh, go about it in a smarter way um, with policies that are truly, you know, like following those uh, principles, but also in a humanitarian man manner. Um, the problem that we're seeing now is that uh, the Republican Party under Trump has always been afraid of Trump's as voters. They've been afraid of them at the polls. But now, after the Capitol attack and what we're seeing with like Lindsey Graham at the airport, now they're afraid for their actual lives because they think if they oppose Trump, if they like vote for impeachment, that sort of thing, they may actually be physically attacked. And so we have reached the stage of like Russia, where expressing opposition to the leader might get you killed. 
And that is going to make it arguably harder for the GOP to get away from Trump. As we saw at the recent RNC meeting, uh, leaders there are still suppressing support for tr- expressing support for Trump, um, saying that they want him to lead the party in the future. And that is incredibly concerning. Yeah, and that that ten members of his own party voting to impeach him is the most have have has ever happened in in American history. Never before has ten sad. members of a president's own party voted to impeach him. Um, that's something. He's also the first person to be impeached twice. A very telling fact: we've we've import impeached presidents four times, and half of them were Trump. <laughs> Oh God! But, you know those those um those Republicans who did the right thing and put country over party yeah. are now saying that they have to hire um personal security guards and body um, armor in yeah. order to protect themselves because they're receiving death threats from Trump supporters from that terrorist movement called MAGA. Now the Republican Party absolutely has to distance itself from this, and until it does. The Democratic Party, certainly at least the Democratic establishment, which is standing up against the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, um, are the new conservatives, frankly, because they're actually standing up to preserve our institutions while Trump's mob is trying to tear them down. They are not defending the integrity of our election. They are assaulting the integrity of our elections. They are trying to destroy America, period. There's nothing conservative about that. That's as far from conservative as you can possibly be. I beg you, do not call these people conservatives. That's what they want you to call them. And might as well call them freedom fighters if you call them that. They are not conserving anything. They are radical enemies of the state who are trying to tear society down before our eyes. Yeah, and it's all it goes to the the cult mentality of it because like if election, if every election fraud claim being debunked and exoneration of the election by 62 court cases, the Justice Department, essentially every election and security official, every agency that you would consult on this isn't enough proof that the election was legitimate, then nothing is. And those who still believe that Trump's voter fraud lies uh, have been conditioned to dismiss any evidence conflicting with their narrative as fake news. It's not about evidence to them anymore. It's faith in Trump and faith in his worldview. And when your beliefs are not falsifiable, when no empirical evidence can prove them wrong, that is religious faith. And when your religious devotion is to a person rather than ideals or principles, that is a cult. And yes, it's and not their motivation just- to have faith in Trump is that it has an emotional appeal to them. Yeah. Right? And 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 Trump is th- this thing that they have an emotional appeal. In. It's not. This is not um, conservatism. This is radical, un-American, treasonous movement, right? That they have chosen to place their faith in. And what was so disappointing was to see the GOP just jump right on board with that because it doesn't get any more clear to me than the fact that the RNC abandoned their policy platform after Trump won the primary. Instead of fighting for principles, they decided to support whatever Trump does, making them part of this cult. Yeah, I actually saw a really uh, useful concept to break this down. I wish I could credit the source. I don't remember exactly who it was. Um, but it, it, it's basically just it, it's just kind of political analysis. So it, it, I suppose it doesn't need a source. It just um, but basically, like the argument was, you know, the, the GOP is made up of uh, two groups. 
It's actually made up of lots of different groups. But in this case, for this for the case of this analysis, basically you can separate it into gamers um, and breakers. And the gamers are people who easy are, now. I'm a gamer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am too. The gamers are people who are trying to work within the system to game the system, if you will, um, in order to get their way. And frankly, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with doing what you need to do to build a coalition. It's hard to herd sheep. It's hard to herd coalitions to get people with different views that often disagree with each other to come together to put together a majority coalition to pass policy in, in democracy. It's messy, and that's fine, right? But the gamers were and this is where i do think they they made a mistake and have some world culpability um they were willing to go so far in gaming the system that they would pander cynically to this very anti-conservative radical racist um you know the the new confederacy flying confederate flags i'm sorry if you're flying a confederate flag don't tell me you're not a racist i'm sorry Right. And theocracy. As they, well. they, the Southern strategy basically is what I'm talking about here, right? Like with their cynical willingness to pander to those people and uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal, um, and the Chamber of Commerce, uh, and donors um who wanted low taxes and low regulation, which I support, right? Um, were went too far in pandering to these people. And what's happened is Trump took the reins of the party away from the elites, the Mitt Romneys, the rich um, capitalist right-wing people, and handed it over to this unruly, unwashed, basically left-wing, apart from their racism, not that not the racism is right-wing either. I mean, I'm sorry, like, I don't believe that belongs on the spectrum, okay? <laughs> Being racist doesn't make you right-wing, it just makes you racist. But, you know, basically racist lefties, racist commies, that's who these people are. I'm sorry. Like I said, I'm not going to beat around the bush. He just handed it off to them. And now you'll, you'll, you see what's happening, especially after the attack on the Capitol. You see all of these huge corporations are pulling funding for every single Republican who voted to support Trump and his seditious attempt to overthrow the election, right? They're partially doing that because it's a PR problem for their company. But honestly, I think the main reason is because it doesn't make sense for capitalists, you know, big companies, wealthy people to fund the Republican Party anymore if it's going to be an economically populist labor reaction against free trade capitalism, right? Now, as long as those people were just being manipulated cynically by appealing to their racism and their sexism and their homophobia, um, as long as it was just a, a cynical ploy, then, you know, certain companies were willing to support that because they were still getting what they wanted. But now the GOP is not even standing up for those ideas anymore. It's just a traitorous cult, right? And a left-wing one at that. I mean, literally left of Biden on trade and foreign policy, for fuck's sake. Now that that's the case, it doesn't make any sense to support them anymore because they're no longer a useful mob to them. They're just a problem. Yeah, and I mean... I think that a lot of the people that are engaged in this Trump movement now, um, they probably always had bad positions and and wanted uh, wanted something like this. They wanted a place to belong and be able to express uh, some really off color uh, beliefs and positions. Um, I do want to say also that 
reiterate the point that it's not just MAGA engaging in conspiracy culture. Uh, we do see Democrats all the time saying like, McConnell can't possibly have won Kentucky, almost mirroring Trump's own voter fraud conspiracies exactly. Uh, we see them going on about everything that happened at the Capitol as being a uh, planned conspiracy, and conspiracies are almost pretty much everywhere we go. So um, somehow, even after conspiracies led to a mob invading our Capitol, people either still don't see the danger of spreading wild speculation, or they don't recognize that they're participating in it. So yeah, I that's true, to... and it's bad enough when a regular person does that. But when a person who is uh, an elite of society who has power and has and what they say on television has real consequences, predictable consequences in real life, for those people to spread those conspiracy theories is just beyond the pale. Right? For sure. It's not a regular person. I mean, regular people doing it on Twitter should be ashamed too. But their their power is on their own is relatively limited. It is it's the it's the fact that the president of the United States is spreading the exact kind of propaganda that China or Russia or North Korea likes to spread in order to incite violence and undermine faith in American democracy at home and abroad, which is bad for us domestically and in terms of our foreign policy. Boy, that's an understatement. It's extremely bad for us to have the president of the United States. And frankly, he wasn't even doing his job. I mean, he spent four years doing nothing but fomenting anger through lies. He did a lot of golfing. He didn't accomplish too. a damn thing. But I do want to push back a little bit on that. Um, I, I agree with you completely that, you know, leaders have much more responsibility to avoid that sort of thing. But it is also a culture that is building. There's a conspiracy culture that every time even, uh, you know, unknown people, even the little guys, uh, just random people on the street engage in conspiracy theorizing, it promotes that culture and it makes it uh, seem more reasonable for other people around them to engage in it. So I want to be clear and give an imperative to all of our listeners to always question your beliefs, always question your logic, always question your evidence. Before you try to be a part of the solution, just make sure you're not a part of the problem, because this is a responsibility that we all share to avoid conspiracy theory. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. Um, I didn't mean to. And in fact, I've said many times before that the only reason that we have such an unfit person in the White House is because too many Americans were willing to vote for him. And that includes, by the way, a lot of Bernie Bolsheviks who refused to vote for Hillary Clinton because she wasn't enough of a communist for them. This is as far true. as I'm concerned, those people are just as responsible for this as the, you know, the alt-right Nazi shitheads who voted for Trump. They're, they all go in the basket together, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so maybe we should uh, take that into de-radicalization, because I would argue that ceding a third of the country to authoritarian cultism is not practical. And as enraging as these people are, these people who believe in Trump after he sabotaged our pandemic response to the tune of tens of thousands of excess deaths, fomented rejection of democracy, and incited an insurrection against our government, as much as I despise them, it is important to remember that deluded as they are, they do think that they're doing the right thing. At least I would say that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I agree with them. Well, I mean, I guess they think they're doing the right thing. They've convinced what they think them. the right thing is, is, you know, making sure that democracy is only for people who think like them and look like them. 
that's what they're doing. I, like I said, I don't believe that they really think the election was stolen. I think they think that allowing brown people to vote by mail is bad because they want to win because they, because they only believe in democracy if they get their way, which means they don't really believe in democracy, do they? Right. I would agree that some that for a, large, a significant percentage of the crowd, um, it is based on things like racism. But um, I would also say that that just makes them more vulnerable. You know, and, and I, actually, I don't want to over I don't want to overstate the racism part of it, too, because I, I also think that something the left fails to point out is that racism really can go both ways. Um, there, there is no such thing as reverse racism. They're right about that. Because when a black person is racist against a white person, that's not reverse racism. That's just racism, right? Um, racism is one form of bigotry that exists in this world, right? But what I'm, what I'm saying is that they have a kind of xenophobia um, where they have a very narrow conception of what America is based on their parochial and uncultured view of the world. And anybody who doesn't fit their conception of an American, whether it's due to skin or belief system, such as religion or whatever, um, they don't think that those people's rights matter. I would say that there are a whole host of of underlying reasons that people want to believe what Trump is offering. And he gives them justifications for, for, uh, for believing in that. But I, I do think in the end, they have, they have convinced themselves, they have justified it to the point that they do truly believe the Democrats stole the election um, because they need to believe that in order to believe the other things that they want to believe. So yeah, maybe maybe I'm overthinking it because maybe these people are not operating on an, a high enough intellectual level for their con their conception of what a belief is to um, to apply in the way that we're discussing. Right. Like, what does it really mean to believe something if your epistemology right. is as simple as a straight line from what makes me feel good must be true? I mean, I, I do think that that everybody underestimates uh our own vulnerability to radicalization. Um, I think it's a lot. I think everyone can be radicalized in the right circumstances. Some are going to be more vulnerable to it than others. But I mean, as I've said before, like I started getting radicalized during Andrew Yang's campaign because of the media shutting him out and everything. And I was definitely moving toward that, like, you know, fuck it all, burn it down sort of mentality. I didn't never got there, but I recognized at some point, like, yeah, I was getting radicalized because, uh, you know, things were, there were unfair, there was unfairness in the system and I was pissed off about it. And I was uh, more willing to move in that direction. So I, I, and I wasn't even cut off like these people were in like the right wing propaganda uh, media ecosystem. Like if I had been hearing nothing but uh, what Trump wants me to hear and what the right wing media is mirroring him, it would have been even easier for me to be radicalized. So I think no, we that's underestimate true, that's that. That's also a self-selecting problem, isn't it? I mean, there's no reason, there's sort nobody's of. forcing them. But nobody's I mean, if everybody around you is doing watch Fox News and read Breitbart all day long, right? I mean, they, they're choosing that because it, it really does come down to their worldview. And, and by the way, Alex, there's a... Um, 
there's an elephant in the room and I, and I want to make sure we get back to your, what I'm sure is incredibly well-researched um, talking points about the Trump insurgency. But while we're discussing uh, our own relationship as people who are conservative to one degree or another um, with this alt-right assault upon true conservative values, um, I want to clarify for me, the idea that some of these people might be motivated to believe Trump um, and to believe his lies um, and support terrorism in his name, um, not just by xenophobia, but also by economic hardship, right? Mm-hmm. That does not make me more sympathetic toward them. I think that's something where we, we might disagree a little bit because I, maybe I'm further on the right than you. But to me, we especially since we already live in a society that overtaxes the middle class, as far as I'm concerned, and that is extremely generous toward the poor, um, even if not as generous as, as some other democracies are, I'll grant you that. But like these people, many of them, especially the ones who are experiencing economic hardship, they're literally being kept alive by my tax dollars. Not by me alone, of course, but by the tax dollars of people like me. And the fact that they are willing to destroy democracy and commit acts of violent terrorism in order to rob more money from me does not make me more sympathetic to their cause. And and that's part of what I meant when I said that this rise of the alt-right has actually made me more conservative and not only more conservative, but more right-wing. Because I used to have a lot more sympathy um, for a lot of the causes on the left than I do now. At this point, um, my support of Andrew Yang's UBI is a compromise. It's not my default position. My default position right now would be to end the entire welfare state and dramatically cut taxes on the middle class because I consider a lot of these people to be their, their, their very existence to be an existential threat to civilization And I do not think they're good people who deserve compassion. I think they're bad people who deserve judgment. And they certainly do not deserve forced generosity on my behalf. Now, I do support the UBI as a compromise. And I will continue to support it as a compromise unless the left ruins it. If they do away with all the things I like about it, like, for example, if they means test it so that it no longer acts as de facto tax relief for the middle class, then forget it. I go back to my default. Just kick them all off. You know what I mean? So I just wanted to get that out there, that we do both support the same policy, but I really just don't buy this idea that the fact that some of these Trump-supporting terrorists um, are poor Trump-supporting terrorists means that I should have more compassion toward them. Yeah, maybe, maybe, if they were willing to fight their battles within the democratic system. But since they're assaulting democracy, as far as I'm concerned, kick them off. Well, that's fair. Um I'm not going to try and argue for you to be more altruistic. Uh, you can retain that position. What I'm going to say... <laughs> yeah, well, maybe you're a better person than I am, Alex, but, you know, everybody has uh, their limits, and generosity toward Nazis is where I draw the line. I'm sorry. So what I will say is, uh, first, I'm going to push back on uh, your view that these are just bad people and that's the end of it, because it's a static mindset perspective, right? So these people were not radicalized before. Um, They do not have to be radicalized in the future. It is possible that we can change them and we need to facilitate that change, I would argue. 
Um, so I, I mean, like you, you, so you've had people on your podcast before that were uh, drawn into the Trump movement or drawn into hate groups or whatever, and they got out of that and they now see the error of that way. Um, so the, it is possible for people to change. It is possible for people to leave behind like racist views and other other things that we would consider bad. Um, so I want to push back on that. And then second, I want to say that you don't have to believe, you don't have to be like uh, compassionate toward them to recognize that there are certain things that make people more rad- more vulnerable to radicalization. And one of those things is uh, a lack of prosperity economically. One of those things is feeling disenfranchised by democracy. Um, these are things that just make it easier for people to radicalize them. And so that is a practical reason that you can have for uh, caring about improving their quality of life, or at least their perception of it. Um, so that that's what I would have to say about that. Yeah, no, I mean, yes, I, obviously I, I, I agree that we should work to de-radicalize people. And I think, as I said, Trump has responsibility for saying, I mean, like he could de-radicalize a bunch of them by just not lying about the election anymore. Right. Right. He's not going to do that because that's not who he is. Right. And again, you know, this is kind of a chicken or egg problem as far as I'm concerned, because the only reason that Trump's bad character is a problem on this scale is because enough people saw fit to to elect him in the first place. And so, you know, who do you really blame? I think ultimately has to go back to the people who voted for him. Yeah, that's that's fine. That's fair. I mean, I'm not saying that that you just treat these people as complete victims and you just absolve them of, of responsibility. Absolutely not. You need to hold them accountable for their actions. You need to denounce those actions as you... As you said on one of your previous episodes, um, you know, denounce the actions, but don't treat them as just don't just write off those people as hopeless. You know, they can change and we need to we need to push them. To to be clear, to be clear, there's like writing people off as hopeless and giving up on any efforts to de-radicalize them are not synonymous with just kicking them off welfare. Right. Or uh, uh, doing right. away with yeah. social security or any of those things—that that's just an economic position. And I'm just saying, like, the realization that so many Americans are such horrible people, like whether or not they they are permanently going to be in that state. And also, Alex, I have to say, I mean, Trump wouldn't be able to radicalize them in this way if there wasn't something about them that was rotten to the core to begin with. It's like it's, <laughs> like, it's just encoded into their genes, truly. <laughs> I mean, like, let's just be honest about. I'm that. not sure I agree about that, but <laughs> I don't. I don't know how you could say otherwise. I mean, unless you th- believe in the blank slate, right, and that people are born without personalities, and all that matters is the inputs that get into them. You know, I mean, like that's kind of a Marxist thing, and I know you're not a Marxist by any stretch of the imagination. You're a center right, if anything, as far as I'm concerned, and I like that about you. Um, but like, you know, the uh, the Soviet Union believed in this this idea of like the blank slate and they they actually to the point where they actually imprisoned or executed um psychologists who offered evidence to the contrary and it's because it was an important part of their political system that they had to believe in this idea that all problems can be solved at the systemic level and and that meant erasing individuality and the role of individuals and the responsibility of individuals in society and the attempt to fix everything through a kind of top down approach 
of, uh, you know, social engineering. Right. And I just think there are limits to that. Yes. Inputs do influence people and change their behavior, but you know, they're also born with certain characteristics. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously the, you know, genetic versus, uh, environmental debate and that's been going on for a long time it will continue to go on um yeah no, and, and i think on. the obvious answer is that both nature and nurture matter i'm just saying let's not right. erase the nature part of it that's all yeah no i agree i agree um i wouldn't want to say that it's entirely one or the other and that's that's just what i'm trying to get at is that you know all right so alex um what can we do to make some steps toward de-radicalizing these people and what can we do to protect the country from you know the trump insurgency terrorist movement yeah. So um, on de-radicalization, I think we need to uh, we need to look at how how radicalization happens, which is when you look at how people are recruited into gangs and cults, they feel left out of society. The cult offers them a tribe, an identity, a purpose, even excitement. Um, people buying Trump's bullshit are not fat cats. They're mostly those left behind economically. And that economic desperation is rocket fuel for people who are looking to radicalize them. The one good thing that Trump has done is push both parties into supporting unconditional cash, which will make it so much easier to pass UBI. And UBI cannot possibly solve this alone. But I want you to think about how many political grievances and positions ultimately track back to people worried about their income. It's the vast majority, in my opinion which is why guaranteeing survival income is so impactful. Removing the threat of poverty and financial insecurity become, removes the most common fear of humanity, and the Democratic Party just won explicitly on passing unconditional cash, and the GOP knows that they lost because of it. We literally got the ideal outcome from that election. So that's really good news, and it gives us some hope for the future. Um, second, and obviously, it, it means that since we have the Senate now, we also can pass other reforms that we need to desperately need. Um, second, I would say people also want real representation and democracy, meaning that elected officials should fight for what their constituents want within the law. And obviously, I'm going through like systemic changes we can make right now. There's there's others. Um, policies with majority support on both sides should pass. We don't have the right. We don't have that right now. And frustration with underrepresentation, with nothing getting done, with Congress serving corporate interests over people's will, is driving radicalization as well, particularly toward autocracy. So we see this on both sides: people giving up on democracy and wanting to force what they think is right. This is why we need dem democratic reforms as well to enable us to get other reforms passed. And third, we need to make it harder for radicalizing propaganda to reach people. That means reforming social media, the news economy, and democracy um, to reduce platforming of partisan propaganda and lies and conspiracy theories. And so those are kind of the systemic reforms that I would suggest. And then obviously we need reforms in our culture and personal responsibility, which you're probably better to talk about those. <laughs> oh wow, that's a lot, Alex. Um, okay, I mean, about no, it no, I mean, like like I like I said, I I support um, certain forms of UBI and I support certain um, electoral reforms as a compromise. Um, my main reason for supporting them is that I want, well, in the case of the UBI, is that I want the middle class um, to have a tax break. I want to get people off of welfare. Um, so another thing the left could do to lose my support would be to allow it to stack on welfare, whereas I think UBI needs to phase out welfare. Um, 
in 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 exactly the way that Andrew Yang proposes. Um, I agree. You know, if you if you look at the uh, how do I put this? Um, if your argument and I, and I want to get to the one about news um, next because I want to ask you among other things. Um, how do you reform, you know, the news and social media in a way that respects uh, free speech? Um, and I, because I know you support that as I do, and that's, a, I think, a genuinely difficult question. Yeah. Um, but before we get to that really quickly, I just want to stipulate that I am agnostic about whether or not a UBI and electoral reforms are going to result in de-radicalizing people. And here's some evidence for it. As I said, the parts of the country that are most deeply Trump supporting, um, the places where he most overperformed his polls are poor rural areas, um, which already receive more in federal benefits than they pay in taxes. So they are already takers rather than makers. They are already the beneficiaries of center left generosity. Um, and also these very places due to advantages in the electoral college, um, and in um, the Senate, uh, you know, due to every state getting two senators, regardless of how small it is, yep. um, and even in the House due to gerrymandering, these people already have huge electoral advantages. Um, and part of the reason the the founders created the Electoral College in the Senate is because they were they wanted to keep the union together. Room, they were worried certain smaller states might see democracy as illegitimate um, if they didn't have enough of a voice. Um, and therefore would want to secede. But you see, these people are still signaling that it doesn't matter, that the, the generosity they're already getting, they, are they grateful for it? No, they're ungrateful. The um, the democratic advantage that they already have, are they grateful, grateful for it? No, they're still willing to see the whole process of Ill, as illegitimate if they don't get their way. So I'm worried that giving these people more power and more money is only going to make the situation worse, not better. I'm not saying that is the case, but I also don't think there's any evidence to the contrary. And so my support of UBI and electoral reform are because I really do believe that democracy is compromised and that I need to compromise with the left. I also recognize that people who are as far right as I am are maybe 20% of the population of that. We're not even a majority of the Republican Party. Most of us have left the Republican Party, in fact, um, since the rise of Trump. So... I believe we need to compromise, and 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 I and I'm willing to stand up for that. But I also think it's important to remind people that my default position is what it is, because I am genuinely agnostic about whether or not those things are really going to de-radicalize people, or if it's just going to make them even more ent entitled and selfish and ungrateful uh, than they already are. Also, by the way, um, if people, as I said, if people's support of democracy and the rule of law is dependent upon them getting their way on policy, then they do not support democracy and the rule of law, do they? Yeah, no, that's uh, so. Let's dig into that because that's those are important uh, distinctions. Yeah, and so, by the way, Alex, I should say I know a lot of what I say sounds really harsh, but I hope you and my listeners know that this is coming from a place of genuine moral outrage on my part because I really do believe in democracy and the rule of law, and I just think that anybody on any side of the political spectrum who is assaulting those things is a problem to, to contend with, and 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 we need we need we're not going to fix it by beating around the bush about the problem. That's all. Yeah, no. So I would um, I would say let's dig under the surface of what you said. So um, in terms of UBI and welfare, so there are reasons that you support UBI over welfare, right? There's a uh, welfare has a bunch of bad incentives. It does not offer people real freedom. It kind of traps them in poverty and controls their behavior and uh, 
is just an inferior it's an inferior way to uh eliminate poverty um ubi does yeah, no, that you said that offering. perfectly you 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 know you took words right out of my mouth like 100% that that is why yeah so you so i would say incorporate that perspective into when you're talking about um you know trump supporters uh already getting welfare and what they're getting as we just discussed is kind of it's just kind of a different different form of enslavement from like wage slavery you know so it's not really empowering them it's just kind of sustaining them it doesn't mean that they have uh, economic opportunities it doesn't mean that they have the freedom to pursue their passions in life it doesn't mean that they have purpose it just means that they're going to survive uh not necessarily in a good way. That's a good point. I mean, it's really kind of the worst of both worlds, isn't it? Yes. And that's an interesting, you know, because uh, my um, my one of one of the other uh, recurring co-hosts, uh, Corey Cottrell, um, has said that like he believes that it's still better than nothing. That's his position. Right. He's further yeah. left than you are. Uh, I think that might also explain why my default position is to do away with it entirely, because I don't believe that it's better than nothing. I believe it's worse than nothing. I think it's the worst of both worlds because it's keeping them alive so that and and, it, and therefore empowering them to be a problem for society um, through their existence. Um, but it's not actually helping them, is it? It's 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 just it's just uh, radicalizing them. And keeping their radical lives in place. Yeah, I I would say morally it's better than uh, not having (laughs) welfare. Obviously, I think that's debatable too. I mean, like for for example, just I know I know that this is obviously um, just a you know a microcosm, right? But philosophers often use simple little analogies in order to make broader political points or philosophical points uh, or ethical points. Um, So if you take money from a you know, a good, generous, law-abiding, tax-paying citizen who who otherwise would use it to pay for their kid's education and also gives a lot of money to charity, right? And then you put it into the hands of a literal neo-Nazi who is currently working to overthrow the U.S. government. Do you consider that moral? Sorry, my voice is going out here a little bit. <laughs> I, mean, I, know, I, know, I know that that's not the case. I know that's an extreme example. But since the government has no way of ensuring that won't happen, um, UBI is, is, you know, clearly more fair because everybody's getting it. The person who's paying taxes is getting a tax, tax, tax relief, right? That's equivalent to it. Um, and yes, that Nazi is getting it, but he's not getting any more than anybody else. Unlike our current system where that Nazi might very well be on the dole at the expense of the other person in a way that the UBI just, it just doesn't work out that way. Right. And to me, um, as I said before, like, I think the the idea of America is about freedom. It's about free markets. And UBI gives people more freedom. Once it it frees them from uh, the threat of deprivation and poverty, and and it frees them to actually engage in the uh, job market as a free agent. They're no longer um, forced into situations where they might take a job they don't want for the income. Sorry. For yeah, no, I, I, I think I think I think you should take a sip of water, and I can finish your thought for you there because you're exactly right. They're no longer in a situation where if they take a job, um, or if they start an Etsy shop or something and start bringing in some money, they're going to lose that government funding, right? Because they can keep their UBI; it stacks on their earned income, 
unlike welfare. That's what you're trying to say, right? Yes. And that's why I think that UBI is a very different animal than welfare and why it would help to de-radicalize, whereas welfare kind of helps to radicalize people. You know what? I'm going to give you that one, Alex. That's a really good point. And I appreciate you putting it that way, because as somebody who clearly (laughs) resents the tax and spend nanny welfare state, um, I have to, yeah, yeah, I have to give you that one. It is different. And and so maybe it's not just that they're ungrateful. Maybe it's that um, they're actually being radicalized by perhaps well-intentioned, but incredibly incompetently um, um, run government program. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to the second point of democracy. Um, so even even when these people are winning, when the GOP is in charge, uh, that does not actually translate to you know them feeling that they are represented. Because as we've talked about before, um, you know Congress doesn't really care about public opinion when they're making policy. Uh, so even if your party is in charge, it doesn't mean that you feel that you're being listened to. It doesn't mean that you feel that you're being represented. Um, so there are changes that we can make to democracy where people would feel more represented. And I think that would help to de-radicalize for that reason. Yeah, I think that's a, a, also a valid point. And as I said, I do support many of the same welfare reforms that you would want, yes. uh, um, but as a compromise. And so just to challenge you a little bit to some extent playing devil's advocate, but also because, as I said, I am agnostic about whether or not it would actually de-radicalize people myself. Um, Do you really think that giving regular people more power, more direct power, I mean, it would essentially, we would still be a representative democracy, but it would be closer to a direct democracy. These are reforms that would take us, you know, in a more democratic and a more directly democratic direction. Um, do you really think that giving regular people that much power over policy is a good thing? Because I'm wondering whether or not regular people have extremely bad values and that they're therefore going to support policies that are actually going to make society worse. I mean, that is, that is one of the, one of the, the problems that our founders had. They were worried about mob rule for that reason. I mean, and, and especially at their time, you know, the, the unwashed masses couldn't even read. <laughs> so they had cost to be worried about it. And I'm not sure we've come that very far since then. But that is why they placed a lot of checks and balances in the system, right? So what I would say is um, look at the policies in America that have the broadest public support. It's stuff like universal health care. It's stuff like unconditional cash. These are things that are not bad. And con- on the contrary, look at how Trump managed to radicalize people what was he preying on? He was preying, preying on racism, but he was also preying on everybody in government is corrupt because, you know, they do what they want. They serve corporate interests and not you. And so that perception, um, which happens to be a true perception that uh, politicians serve the corporate interests more than they serve their constituents, is helping to radicalize people and the policies that the vast majority of the country wants, I believe, would be good. So Yeah, no, but you see, that's I guess that's part of the reason we see this differently, and I, I don't expect us to agree. But I, I just don't agree with that populist characterization. I, I, I mean, for one thing, Trump is hands down the most corrupt politician we've ever had. <laughs> yes. 
certainly sure. the most corrupt president. Yeah, no, there's no been argument a there. Politician, it was at a lower level, um, and and so for him to talk about corruption, he has zero credibility. And right. not only that, but anybody who supports him to talk about corruption has zero credibility, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so I, I don't believe they really care about corruption. I think that it's another stand-in, uh, a kind of uh, a social signal, a more socially acceptable way for them to justify their support of Trump, which is actually based on far more um, corrosive, low values that they hold. Well, but think of this as like a political marketing. So the you have this narrative you want to push, right? And the closer you can bring reality to that narrative, the more power that narrative has. Just like when Trump was pushing that, you know, it's going to be uh, the, the the traditional authoritarian position of it's either me or chaos. Um, those riots that were happening during the BLM protests, those helped that position a lot. It oh, made yeah. a lot I said more believable. Time, that the people who were rioting were actually helping Trump, and so they should cut it the heck out. Right. But, so what I'm saying is uh, the harder you make it for people to believe when he when people are trying to radicalize them with stuff like the entire government's corrupt and they don't serve you, the harder you make it for them to believe that, the better. And these and there are certain democracy for, reforms we could take that would make it harder for them to believe that. And yeah, so I think, I think that- Alex, I, 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 let's um let's not turn this into a big debate because, as I said, I'm agnostic. I'm not taking a strong position either way on that. I think that we can come to a compromise and agree that uh, UBI um, would result in less resentment. Um, it would result in less resentment among poor people because they're no longer punished for taking a job or making money. Uh, it result in less resentment among the middle class because they're um, getting tax relief rather than the burden of generosity being put on them unfairly as it is now. Um, and similarly, these electoral reforms would certainly result in at least some people feeling that democracy is more legitimate. Um, right. Goes in the right direction. I think that you can believe that this would be successful at de-radicalizing some people and also at the same time believe simultaneously that what I said, which is that some people are just you know, bad people who are always going to see democracy as illegitimate and are always going to be entitled resentful pricks no matter what. Like, I think both that of those things possible. can be true because we're talking about millions of people and people are different from each other. Right. It's a spectrum. Yeah, no. So I, I think I think it's worth doing, um, and because it would be an improvement over the status quo, um, and because I I do believe I need to compromise at the left, and because I do think it would de-radicalize some people, it's worth doing. But I also think if we can't pass those policies, we need to come at it the other way. Um, and one one um one one way of coming at that, as you said, is reforms to the press. And so I'm about to ask you, as I said, um, how, how do we do that in a way that respects the First Amendment? Because we must. Uh, and it's also the right thing to do, but also I think we need to have legal. We need to have legal reforms. Um, we, you know, the, the people who are going to remain a problem no matter what need to have the book thrown at them, and oh, yeah. in For a sure. big way. I mean, we we actually I didn't realize this until recently, but recent events forced me to look into it. Apparently, we don't actually have a legal definition of domestic terrorism, um, and we absolutely should. It's Antifa. <laughs> We absolutely should. And and whether it's being done by Antifa or by MAGA, domestic terrorists should be treated no better than foreign terrorists, as far as I'm concerned. In fact, maybe worse, because they're also committing treason. So, yes, I, I, I do think we should try to de-radicalize people. But at the same time, we need law and order. And when people um, 
cause chaos and 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 attempt to overthrow our democracy. Um, you know, I personally, I I I think that we you know we've mostly done away with the death penalty. But something worth considering is maybe we do away with the death penalty and everything except for treason and terrorism. If you commit domestic terrorism, we're going to kill you. Something to think about. I mean, I think we need to send to people a, a strong message that this is unacceptable. Well, I think the problem the problem with that is that it just the death penalty has not been shown to be a deterrent. So it just kind of doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's actually a good point, especially in the case of terrorists who sometimes are even willing to die for their cause. And it costs us more. So like what yeah. it's just bad. Yeah. Um, um okay, so so if not that, um I I mean I think I think we did agree that we at least should put on the books that domestic terrorism has a legal meaning. Can we agree on that? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's always going to be a broad. Apart from that one detail, I mean, what can we do to reform the press and social media in a way that respects the First Amendment? And what can we do uh, to increase uh, the legal consequences of these sorts of actions? Alex. And by the way, thank you to MAGA for finally admitting that they are Antifa so that we can now pursue that terrorist ring to the utmost of the law, you know, just sweep them all up. Uh, it's going to be great to see the interviews when people are like, I never knew that my family member was Antifa this whole time that they were. Yeah, no, 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 apparently, when they were saying Antifa is actually fascist, they were they were literally correct. <laughs> yeah, my personal theory is that uh, Trump himself is Antifa, because why else would he be trying to destroy the country? Like, makes sense. <laughs> He's the oh. one destroying the GOP and everything like that. All right, that. so the, pre- the press and legal reform. Right, right, right. um, so Jack actually, Jack, the CEO of Twitter, um, put out a thread recently that was addressing all of this, uh, free speech and the role of private versus public in uh, regulating that, um, which was really interesting. So he kind of... He acknowledged that, like, you know, it's a private, Twitter's a private company. Um, in the free market, they have the authority to decide what does and doesn't get hosted on their platform. Um, it is important to remember that uh, the First Amendment is about protecting people from censorship by the government and that private companies have their have the right to choose who they're that's absolutely correct alex and not only that but if the federal government or state government or any level of government were to step in and try to tell a private company what be it communist. can and not publish on its own platform that would be a violation of free speech and a violation of the first amendment it yes would also exactly. be a violation of private property rights it would it would literally be communism right it would yeah. be the state seizing control of a government of, of a business um, so no, that's unacceptable. Yeah. So important to note that. Um, but he also acknowledges that, you know, some of these companies are so big and so many people use the platform as like a regular, uh, part of life. And like so many businesses are dependent on these platforms that, you know, getting censored on those platforms does bear some resemblance to getting censored by the government, even though they are just, Ampl- amplifying your free speech and that's not a right you have um yeah, it, some yeah the, some superficial resemblance but absolutely no legal resemblance correct so he he was actually um talking about a standard that they're trying to work on that they call blue sky which would be a kind of standard for 
truth and the process of what gets censored, what um, what is allowed on social media that would be a third party and all of the social media companies would be clients of this party. And so that would kind of establish a standard that says, you know, if you're um, if you're conduct if you're engaging in this kind of speech, this is going to be the consequence because a lot of the uh, frustration right now is that people feel like the rules are being applied in a biased manner, and that seems to be true in some cases. Um, so that might help if there was a third party, an arbiter that laid out like this is how it's going to be for all social media. Oh, interesting. So um, it would be uh, a, a third party organization, kind of like the global parliament of mayors or something like that, that people voluntarily agree to join, a social media company voluntarily agrees to join. Um, and they work out uh, a, something like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the UN created, something like that. Yeah, it's not exactly clear what they're pushing for, but I would imagine at the very least it would be enforcing. Um, you know, empirical fact. If you're just spreading lies, then that would be unacceptable. Um, obviously, you're going to have to deal with sarcasm and all that, but whatever. Um, and then some manner of like, if you're inciting violence in this way, then that's unacceptable. But of course, you know, know, you can't force every social media company to be part of it. Right. Um, so what do you do about the fact that some companies like Parlay or whatever are going to refuse to abide by those rules and you can't really force them to. I mean, I don't have any real solutions personally. Um, I think that it should be, it should be a law that you're not allowed to just spread empirical lies on the internet because that's just, it's destructive for society as we've seen very clearly recently. Um, well, you know I don't what's, think... funny, what's funny about it is that there are actually limits on people's ability to spread certain kinds of lies in the public. Um, Very but, few. You know, social media companies um, are uh, immune to them um, because of Section 230. And ironically, right. Trump wants to get rid of it because he – I don't know. He seems to think that that would mean that he would be censored less. But yeah, every I don't know what tweet is there. of his is a lie. And so if you were to get rid of Section 230, what would actually happen is they would be much more strongly motivated to censor Trump. In fact, they would have to because if they didn't, then they would be liable for the lies that he's spreading. Yeah, exactly. And uh... – one thing to note is Section 230 yeah, people, doesn't just apply. I don't know. I mean, Alex, I'm just wondering out loud, but like if, um, if you know, Twitter what were liable for every lie that's spread on its platform, it would have to dramatically change the way Twitter works. Like it, it would basically yeah. result in people not being able to just just anybody who wants to going on there and having a platform and starting to speak because that would be a completely unacceptable liability for them. Like they basically would have to shut down the business as we know it. I mean, I'm not, it would, I'm not seeing a position whether that's a good or a bad thing, but it just seems like that would be the, the inevitable consequence of it. Yeah, I think they would basically have to take it from, I mean, it, assuming that they can't develop some incredible, incredibly smart AI that's able to just detect lies and filter them out, um, they would kind of have to take it from being a live system to being uh, a delayed system where like every tweet has to get checked. Um, to make sure that it's okay before it actually posts. And yeah, yeah, something like that, which of course would also be much more expensive per user, and therefore oh, yeah. their current business model of relying on advertising 
uh, rather than charging for their service wouldn't work. You know, I mean, um, I, I think I think that you're onto something there because I personally would like it if Twitter, you know, if it costs $10 a month to be on Twitter, um, a lot of the the worst people on there wouldn't be on there anymore. Um, and then on top of it, if uh, if Twitter were to uh, protect itself from liability by forcing people who are on there to sign a contract that says, like, whatever I say on this platform, I am personally liable for it rather than the company. Right. If they were to do those two things um, or some combination thereof, um, you know, then it would probably result in it being a, a better platform for public discussion. Like, I mean, yeah, I think some people contribute <laughs> worse than nothing um, in the public sphere. And I'm a bit of an unapologetic elitist, but locking them out of the conversation, I mean, not, you know, they, they could do it, but they have to pay for it and they have to abide by the rules. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want like ideology and ideas to be censored, but I do think there are some universal standards that could be applied to public discourse um, on a large platform. That's just like, you know, no empirical lies and uh, no inciting violence seem like two that we should all be able to get behind. Um, and yeah. if you don't want to follow those rules, then you cannot be... are still inevitably going to find a place to do it, but at least they won't have as they big will. of an yeah. audience. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, Alex, great. And what about on uh, legal reforms? I mean, um, I already said make domestic terrorism a thing. Um, any other ideas on that front? Well, I mean, we need a lot of uh, reforms in our justice system to make it more just. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I haven't really thought about uh, in terms of terrorism. So I'll just go with yours on that. I guess strict, stricter penalties, which goes along with having it be an actual crime would be a start. All right, Alex. um, Thank you so much for coming on again. This was great. Uh, You provided nice balance to my perspective. Um, And I think we did a pretty good job explaining how we could be absolutely furious that half of one of our major parties supports a terrorist movement um, without being partisan um, and pointed out the responsibility that the far left plays in all of this as well. So um, is there anything you want to say before we start wrapping up anything that on your list you didn't get to? I don't think I can say anymore without my voice giving out. So I'll just call it good. (laughs) All right. That's how that sounds good to me. Um, all right. And I, I'm going to, another thing I'm doing that's new is I'm thinking, I'm thinking a patron at the end of every episode. So this time I'm thinking Mike Finney, Michael Finney, um, who has, uh, been very generous and, um, looks like he's given us about 102 bucks, something like that so far, which is great. Yeah, I know. Right. Awesome guy. I also happen to notice that he tweets a lot about the podcast on the evil platform that we just spent a bunch of time shitting on. <laughs> But anyway, I while it exists, I'm, I'm glad that he's spreading the word about about the podcast, because the more people who hear these conversations, the better chance we have of moving forward together um, as Americans. So, Mike, thank you very much for your support. We really appreciate it. And I'll be sure to thank another one next week. And uh, Alex, do you want to say it? Moving forward is our gumbo. Sure is. Hey everybody, this is Alex Cheney from the Yang Daily Podcast. I just want to say thank you to everyone out there for joining us in these conversations. It's never been more important to be engaged and informed 
and listeners like you are why we do this. So please do what you can to bring more people into these conversations by sharing the podcasts and the ideas with those in your life. For more, check out movingforwardpod.com. Until next time.